It's my party and I'll cry if I want to Cry if I want to Cry if I want to You would cry too if it happened to you Yeah, the other thing is world building and embracing myself as an artist. And look, the results have been excellent. My following has doubled in the last six months. I just got monetized on YouTube. That feels Let's great. Let's go. Hell yeah. <laughs> and things just happened so quickly as soon as I started to do my own thing. And like also adding a sense of humor to this serious music, which is, I think, it's hilarious. We're all like speaking this ancient language and filling our head with ancient, like old vocabulary. And it's just, it's funny and everyone takes it seriously. Let's make this a little goofy. And so, and then as far as like expressing myself, it's cool to now see, I'm now seeing like doing these video shoots at my house. People are coming over for food and out of the love of their heart and their hearts and friendship. And I'm super grateful for that. And it's cool to see like who the people who are trying to, get out and like they're down to show me photos of their outfits they're down to bring two outfits like what looks best and like people want i think a lot of people feel like imprisoned by this culture this musical culture so i'm not the only one Welcome, everybody, to the Baking, Baking Notes, Notes Podcast. Podcast. Faking We're Notes here. Pod- We're here. Faking Notes we did it. Before we get into our next guest, who I'm just so excited about, we want to shout out the people that make this ish possible. I'm talking to you, Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. I wanted to highlight especially our Undertakers and Groundbreakers, Asa Chen, Kimberly King Ford, Alice King, Theodore Lemley, and Millicent Isando Bergwork. Thank you so much for your support. And if you want to talk to us and meet other members of the Faking Fam, come join our new Discord channel. Come pick yourself a superhero. I want to like really just talk to you. It's so weird that we've been doing this for two years and I still haven't heard your voice yet. I haven't seen your face. I also wanted to highlight really quick our boy, our man in the chair, Daniel for setting up everything in the discord like you are the Shout goat outs. brother the producer new producer on the show so come join us on discord faking notes podcast and we're going to put a link in the uh show notes as well speaking of hanging out who do we talk to today drew we talked to my girl martina da silva Woo! so I've known about her for years and she's one of the few people when I'm like scrolling on my phone on silent that I stop, (laughs) I turn it on and I have to listen to it. And we know a lot of musicians. We're Mm -hmm. flying through that. We're like, okay, I'm all about business. I need to see pics of dogs and food. But I stop and I always listen every time. She's got an incredible singing voice. And today we actually get to hear her speaking Speaking voice, voice. her (laughs) artistic voice. And it's the same. It's incredible. Just what an artist. So we talk about what she did and didn't learn in school, what translated into a professional career. She's also a native New Yorker. You don't always meet those. That's true. And definitely not ones who are still in New York. <laughs> it's it's like a unicorn. It's incredible. So yeah. we talked about what it was like to grow up in New York and 
how she found her way in jazz by going abroad, by leaving this city and having new experiences and really going out and taking risk. She found out what she wanted to do. She's now editing her own videos, which look awesome. She's designing and making her own clothes. She's becoming the total artist. Oh, for sure. And I resonate with her so deep. I just, I remember when we performed together for the first time and I had never met her. And the moment she sang, I knew she was special. I was like, who is this? Just a little bit about her. She leads her own jazz vocal harmony group, The Ladybugs. She's worked with John Batiste, Adam Neely, Postmodern Jukebox, and more. She was lauded by Vanity Fair as one of the most notable jazz vocalists of her generation. And you can follow her on Spotify and YouTube at Martina Da Silva, Facebook at Martina Da Silva Music, and on IG at Marty Das. This is Martina, Martina Da Silva. Enjoy. Olha que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça, ela menina que vem que passa num doce balanço a caminho do mar. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Martina. I don't have you and Trevor met before? By any no. Chance? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. There's just a handful of people where I've bumped into so many social circles like overlap. Like I'm a friend of Dan's. I've heard your voice, I've heard you sing, I've seen your videos for years and years and years. And I was sitting there thinking, I was like, I don't think we ever actually met. We might have been in the same room at some point, but I don't know if we actually had a proper meeting. But yeah. so great to meet you. Like I've been hearing I've been hearing you for a very long time. So <laughs> thanks for coming through. Thank you for having me. And the last time I saw you, Martina, it was like randomly. It was like two years ago. Center In LA. Yeah, center stage. Do you remember that? That was so wow. That was such a nice mm. surprise. At the end of September 2018, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was about to go on a five-week tour with Postmodern Jukebox, and we had a week of rehearsals at, is that what the studio is called? Center, yeah, okay, center, center Staging. staging. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I just like walk outside to get some water, and I see you, and it was, <laughs> it was such a nice surprise. And you were rehearsing with Camila Cabello? Is that I get, yes, that was for the AMAs. That's right. Yeah. That was my first ever time at Center Staging. It was my first big gig after I moved out here. But I remember being near the vending machine and being like, I heard you guys rehearsing. I was like, man, nowhere in LA, but that sounds like Martina. I don't know why. <laughs> oh. I don't know why. And then there <laughs> and you were. I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> and on top of that, well, because there every postmodern jukebox tour as five singers so we'd take turns rehearsing our songs while the other singers were rehearsing i was on my laptop editing the video that we had filmed a long time ago so i was staring at your face editing footage of you and then i walk out and i see you it was so awesome oh we have Trevor. like after this episode drops we have to share that video okay yeah yeah, we'll definitely share that video what were you saying it was a comforting moment for me because I was like in LA starting with this group, great group of people. But I felt, I don't know, I felt like maybe a little out of place. Like I was new and it was just, it was very nice to see you at that time. <laughs> I felt the same way because I was, that, like I said, it was like my first like gig in Los Angeles that was like 
pretty big. And so I was surrounded by 30, 40 string players that I had never met. And so I was feeling very much the same thing, outsider. But yeah, it's so cool when you just randomly run into friends uh, on the wrong coast. (laughs) I know, I know. So it was meant to happen for both of us that day. Yes, indeed. We both needed that little meetup. (laughs) Oh, yes, for sure. Well, now I'm glad that you're here on on the podcast. I wanted to ask you, we were talking a little bit before we hit the record button, but I was asking like how you are and what's going on in your life. Well, thank you for asking. This has been a interesting year for all of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's going on in the world? Like everyone, there have been a lot of highs and lows for me, and especially as a musician that used to make almost all of my income from performing live. Without that, when that was taken away, it was really hard to figure out what my value was as a person outside of that. And I know, Drew, you said you dealt with that. Trevor, did you share any of those feelings this last year? Oh, yeah. I've expressed many feelings. I got lucky by what I did. And so me moving to LA right around the time Drew came out there, I experienced my year of solitude and sadness. So I got that out of the way. Oh, great. I did well last year, but it really did seem like you (laughs) adapted incredibly just by your sheer presence on YouTube, on socials. You're there. You pushed through. You didn't just appear. And I didn't even know. One of my big questions, too, was, if you were doing all this editing, because I'm like, who is doing this? this is, well, you, I mean, we can you get have so all, much content. It's incredible. We can get all into that. So I, first of all, I have this other band, the Ladybugs. We used to make weekly videos. And so over, over the last few years, I've gotten into video editing and I upgraded my camera probably five months before the pandemic. And I got into it because... It's just too expensive to hire someone to do stuff all the time. So I'm just like, I'll do it myself. And then when the pandemic started, I already had all this equipment. And Josh, my husband, and I have been accumulating recording equipment at our apartment for years. So that was a good setup. So the videos were really helpful because they gave me like a sense of purpose during this time when I couldn't perform. And also, I think... I know a lot of us, it's forced us to take a hard look in the mirror and see what parts of our lives we want to return to and what parts we don't. And there were a lot of aspects of my life as a jazz musician in New York City, running around to a million gigs all the time that I I don't want to return to what my life was before. And so it seemed like the perfect time to really start being a building a following. And Drew, you've been a huge inspiration to me for years. And I, I've i always wanted to get more into YouTube, but I just didn't have the guts to do it. And I think you know, coming from jazz and classical, these two genres that are funded by donors, you, most people don't have any fans. It's the mm. only two genres where you can be a mu- full-time musician without fans. It's I wanted to get <laughs> out of that and actually find... <laughs> Isn't it true, though? It's so, so true. It's so true. <laughs> So I've been really wanting to get out of that so that so that I can find my people. <laughs> just yeah, yeah. Just like you both. I applaud you jumping into the video editing. I, I think the people who don't like people who are like musicians that don't edit, they don't get it. But people who like edit and aren't musicians, they don't get either get it either. Doing both 
means that you have to make significant sacrifices in your life. Significant. Like you can't practice three, four hours a day when you have to edit and you have to put out content weekly. So I, my hat goes off to you on making that transition. You said you'd been doing it for, with the ladybugs for a little while. Like how long had you been doing it before the pandemic? Well, in 2017, so the other vocalists I work with, Vanessa Perea, amazing vocalist, she and I decided to start a weekly video series. It was really low tech at the beginning. I mean, for, I just was using what Sony RX 100, like a single Mm -hmm. shot. What do you call? Is that what it's called? The point Uh, and shoot. Like the point and shoot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a nice point and shoot. Using that, at first, I just put one mic up. Eventually, I started adding more mics, having Dan Shimolensky mix it for me. I got into (laughs) color correcting. And and then I I took a big jump. At the end of uh, 2019, my husband, he has this band called Lucky Chops. It's a brass band. I love that. Do you know them? Okay. It's a brass band with a huge- Oh, yeah. They went super viral. It's just like performing in the subway. Everyone, like dancing, Barry Sachs, dancing everyone. It's dope. Yeah, it's yeah, it's awesome. And my husband is a trombone player and they have a huge global following. So at the end of 2019, they had a seven week tour of Europe, bus tour, big venues, all this stuff. And they wanted to bring a photographer, videographer. I recommended some people who couldn't do it. And he just said, can you just do it, please? And I was like, I mean, OK, I, I got a new camera. I got a mirrorless camera. And in that situation, they didn't pay me a lot, but I'm also like the wife and I'm learning on the job and it was just so much fun. And so that's when I started taking things up a notch. Mm-hmm. And then this past year during the pandemic. That's awesome. Oh, sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> no, this is your show. Please. No, okay. This is all about no. you're the guest here. They're here okay. for you. They don't care about me. <laughs> okay. They're for you. So weird to adjust to this because in real life, it's so impolite to just talk about yourself endlessly. But okay. <laughs> Nothing real about this. Just the conversation. Only this conversation is real. Okay. Well, just to finish that thought. So I got more elaborate with my own videos, the stuff that I've been doing with my duo project, Shimmy Tina with bassist Dan Shimmy Shimolensky. And then when the pandemic started making videos and the Louis Armstrong House Museum reached out to me and said, I was a teaching artist with them for this masterclass series. And most of them got canceled. They wanted to digitize the series, have all the artists make lessons and They said, can you make a lesson and edit all the videos? And I was like, I'm like, are you? I was like, $10 million. I know. I was like, are you? I'm like, I like, I've never done stuff. I know. I've never done stuff like this before, but they based it off. They based it off of my, the stuff I did for myself. And I jumped right in and it grew and grew. And I started doing work for the 92nd Street Y and Queens College and all this stuff. So it's crazy. It's become a full time kind of a full-time job. (laughs) That's phenomenal. (laughs) I'm definitely grateful to have been able to adapt and I'm grateful for the income. I don't want to do it for other people forever, but yeah. But you get to do it for yourself. I mean, Drew, the other person on this call, (laughs) like that's kind of how it starts. It's neat for both of you. And so why I'll like rope you in, you both in together into this uh, beautiful bucket is that you both, without knowing, obviously, because we couldn't have known what was going to happened this past year, had set into motion these other skills, these other things that 
wow, did they pay off big time <laughs> to be able to come through and just have income or really something else to rely on. And actually one of my questions, I was curious going way back because you've been on, you've been a presence on YouTube, Postmodern Jukebox, Shimmy Tina, the Ladybugs, everything, even in a, a deep YouTube dive, dive years and years, you've been a presence and that's not something many of our jazz colleagues and classical colleagues can remotely say, myself included, that we practically just don't exist, just like our fans. And <laughs> it's, I'm just curious, like way back when, did you know, oh, I need to be a part of this? Maybe not in the air quotes influencer sense, but I need to be on video. I need to be on these various like social networks. Were you aware of that or did it just happen by circumstance? Well... I think a long, yeah, because I started making videos and like art directing them like a long time ago. I just think, I think, well, I'll give a little just background on my history as an artist. I come from yeah. a family of visual artists. So that was my first artistic language. So my mom for many years painted scenery at the Metropolitan Opera. My dad is a web developer, graphic designer. He used to do MTA subway maps and my brother is a painter. So I, <laughs> so that, so you know, the choice. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean that, and that wasn't ever what I was like, wanted to pursue as a career, but it was always like, that's just a hundred, a hundred percent a part of what I do. And I think the other thing is I grew up in Manhattan. My family's around, my brother's around. He's in the art world. I have connections to a lot of other people outside the music world. And these are cool artistic people that know what's trendy and they're, they are not interested in jazz and classical music, which is so upsetting to me. But I see if you package it in a beautiful way, if you hide medicine and candy, it's you got, you make some <laughs> access points and then, and you're providing an entryway for people and, so I feel like that's always been at the back of, of my mind. And also, I'm just like, I love movies. Like, I like take screenshots all the time of I want to copy this shot one day. And I love opera to me, like the full experience, story, music, visuals. It's, or like Mahler's first four symphonies have the accompanying text. And it just yeah. adds so much to the experience. Anyway, I could go on and on about that. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's all about and that's incredible i love hearing uh about people's backstories i think that's something that we try to dig into here that doesn't get talked about come in here and tell us about your album what's what software did you use what key is in it no one cares what key it's in but what's really fascinating is having this other visual family and you being the odd one out i'm trying to think there's a bunch of our guests i think there's that one through line to where they're the second generation of artists in their family. And I'm thinking of all our classmates and colleagues, some of the most amazing and interesting people who are going out and really like having an impact on the field. It's generation number two. So mm. I'm shit out of luck, but my kid's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Drew? Are you, what generation are you? I'm like, it, it skipped a generation <clears throat> in my family. My grandfather and thank you for asking that. That's really cool. My grandfather was just like this kind of genius type person. Like he was one of the only students in Morehouse's history to not have to take any final exams. Like he just, he crushed the classes so hard. They were like, whatever, dude, go ahead. And then he 
worked in he was in the, the army band i believe during world war ii and then eventually put it down put down i think he played trombone he put it down and then he auditioned for wisconsin symphony and got the principal spot as a black man like wow yeah and it was crazy he was like one of the only black principal players of that orchestra so and he played guitar and he was just like super creative he used to be able to be at the the typewriter we're dating ourselves right it's my (laughs) great-grandfather be at the typewriter and uh, have a full-blown conversation like with a person over over his shoulder so he was just like one of those like crazy minds (laughs) yes Yes. So he was the musician, but my dad, my mom loved music, but she had a piano teacher when she was like nine that used to take a ruler and hit her knuckles Mm. when she was wrong. Mm. And that killed it for her. My dad like loved music, loved piano, but just like really didn't go into it. So I was just, I was like this weird dude who like picked up a viola and they were, and I was like, can I do this? And they were like, I guess, but I don't know how you're gonna make money. And I was like, I'm going to show you. So, <laughs> so that's how it happened. Wow. So you were actually born in New York City, right? In Manhattan. Martina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Drew's been to the house I grew up in. Or wait, were you at wait, that rehearsal? that's the house you grew up in. I was at, yes, yes. I think Whoa. I have a vlog of it. <laughs> okay. Oh, I want to, I don't, I didn't see that, but. I, okay, I want to send me I want to check that out. It's old. But so okay, I, I'll, um, I'll look for it. I grew up in downtown Manhattan, and the neighborhood has changed a lot. It's it's a lot swankier now than it was when I was a kid. But yeah, grew up mm-hmm. in a two bedroom in a very central location in downtown Manhattan, and shared this bedroom with my twin brother for seventeen years. And then I, I lived in the Heights. Whoa. I lived in the Heights after college and stuff. I lived with my dad when I was here, when I was going to college. And then I lived in the Heights for years. And when I got engaged, my dad did a very nice thing and let me take over the lease from 1992. And so now I live here. That's wonderful. Wow. Congrats. That's great. Yeah, I wonder, what is that like returning to? Because that's just such a rare story for most of the people I know in New York. I think I know like three people who grew up in Manhattan like (laughs) like everyone's an expat so it's just so interesting to hear from someone who grew up there and is still there it's just like a hidden gem do do you still have friends who are around who you grew up with not a lot because it's not the kind of hometown that you can just chill in it's so hard to stay here (laughs) so it's just it's and also like people grew up in small apartments like I couldn't have lived at home like I had to leave as soon as college was done. That was made very clear. So <laughs> um, I had a three month grace period after college. Just so get out. I know. It's space is tight. So many of my friends had to share rooms. Yeah. So I don't have a ton of friends that I grew up with that still that still live here. And honestly, I wouldn't be living here if I wasn't a musician. I wasn't even planning to be a musician. I started college. I did my started my undergrad at McGill in Montreal. I started singing jazz my last year of high school. I was going to apply to other programs there. And I was like, you can get a degree in jazz voice. I didn't even know. I didn't know about Grammy band. I didn't know about new school for jazz, which was right near my house. I didn't, I knew about Parsons. I went to the Parsons 
summer programs. I did not know about New School for Jazz. So I went to McGill and then someone told me it's easier to just leave conservatory than to um try to enter later. So I was like, okay, I'll do this. Then I realized I love jazz. So I moved back home to New York. I was like, why am I studying American music in Canada when I grew up in downtown Manhattan and I can live at home for free? So I moved back home, switched to the new school. Wow. Can I actually jump back? Because I did want to ask you about your time at McGill and mm-hmm. like maybe illuminate for the Faking Fam and myself, honestly, like when that bug bit you. But like you said in senior year of high school, you went to LaGuardia, correct? I did. I did. And I know you two were at Juilliard. So right, that's what I was about to right say. Across like, the Trevor, right across the street. I, I had Juilliard. Cats. The crazy What's thing up? is because they were doing in typical New York fashion, like construction around where the, the giant <laughs> planks and all the walls are covered mm-hmm. up and you walk. I had no idea for a whole like two years that LaGuardia was there. <laughs> I always heard of this legendary LaGuardia and half the people at Juilliard went to LaGuardia and it was LaGuardia this, LaGuardia that. I had no idea it was across the street. And well, I lived you also in that can't dorm because it was t- covered. I was going to say, you also can't see the teenagers because there's just a cloud of smoke outside the school at three o'clock every day. <laughs> I was one of those teenagers. Speaking of those teenagers, for both of my years of my master's, I only did my master's at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. And I would be, I was one of the orchestra mentors. So, like, I was in orchestra class with all the angsty high schoolers. They wouldn't really talk to me. It's like I always had all these questions because they all said they went to LaGuardia. And I'm like, these kids are dope. And they're going to a high school. It's an arts high school? Yeah. Okay. What's that like? Because I went to public school. Same. I, mean, I don't know I, this, what arts high school is like. First of all, I'll just be clear. LaGuardia is a public school. Oh, so okay. That, and mm-hmm. that's why it is so incredible. That's because... The, there's no uh, barrier to entry. It's liter- It's just the most talented kids in New York City. So it is, I wow. mean, it was an incredible place. I don't know if I would be a musician today if I hadn't gone there. I probably wouldn't have because I didn't even have a private voice teacher mm-hmm. till college. So I'm so lucky I got that at LaGuardia. Yeah. And I'm so, I'm so lucky I got that there because growing up in New York City, Middle school is like applying to middle school is like applying to college. You look at all the middle schools. High school is the same way. So you get to you get a chance to choose a school that's a good fit for you. And I got into LaGuardia for visual art and singing. And I don't I can't tell you why I chose singing. I don't maybe I thought I have visual art at home, but as a kid, anytime you could choose art or music, I chose art. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why it seemed easier or I don't know. Might be because your parents, you know. Yeah, probably. It could be the influence from your parents. So being around it, it was probably comfortable. But why did you choose singing? Because that's huge, right? Like you said it before earlier on in this this conversation, like your parents – like your mom worked for the worked with the Met. Your dad's a graphic designer. Your brother's a painter. This was preordained, but you like decided, nah, son, let me do some singing. Why? I just probably like deep down, I felt like that was why I was that was my calling on earth. I guess. I mean, probably. Mm-hmm. I don't remember thinking about that, and I was like, oh, I don't know, I'll do singing, but like, I. 
visual art, like the projects were always happening in the house. My mom was like, for Valentine's Day, here are some boxes. We're all going to make each other dioramas. I'm not joking. This was totally, our friends would come over. <laughs> draw, I'm not joking. This was my life. Friends Song would come band. over. It would be like, draw your dream tree house. And like, it was really fun. So to me, I didn't realize I was practicing or I just remember coming home from school, like almost every day, locking myself in my mom's room and just singing until dinner because I just loved it so much. So and I think at a young age, I definitely got some feedback that it, it was a natural thing that I had some natural ability. So yeah. So you, you bet on it. I love it. Speaking of visual art, like that seems to have continued. So you've been, uh, I think, via the Instagram, have you been making your own clothes and like getting like, oh, fully? Oh, yeah. Oh, I should have worn something I made. Oh, it's I should, all good. I was going to say last podcast I did, I wore a shirt that I made because I was like, maybe this will come up, but it, it didn't. So I didn't think to do that today. I that, had to talk about it. Oh, I would love to talk about it. I've always definitely been like into how my outfits at all times always LaGuardia was a fashion show it started there every day fashion show so <laughs> I'm not joking people I like people really dressed in really awesome clothes there and were very creative I think I got into sewing for a few reasons one I think I did a lot of research on fast fashion and I just didn't want to contribute to it it's so horrible for the environment for the people that are working. It's creating the clothes. It's just horrible for so many reasons. The dresses that I like to buy, I, I can't buy tons of them because they're very expensive, the sustainably made beautiful dresses. So that was one reason. And then also, yeah, clothes, they now people used to tailor their clothes and have a few beautifully made pieces. And now you go to a store and you try something on, it doesn't fit. You feel bad about yourself. And I was sick of feeling that way. And I took a sewing class. It changed my life. It got me out of my COVID depression, made me feel creative again. And on top of that, I could show off my cool outfits online. So success. That's awesome. I knew I had to, I wanted to ask about it. I need to learn it. That's something that they list. And like when you're trying to be a, a Renaissance man or, or something that's cool, it's oh, back in the day. All these dudes would sew, sew their clothes. And like now dudes are just useless. We, just, we don't contribute anything to society. But yeah, my, my sister's a costume designer. Oh, wow. And so she, or, or that, that was her, what she got her degree in. And so I've like always been around it. And that was specific to theater. So it's like out there, it's, it's dealing with some like crazy things. So I've always been around that. And I just thought that was in interesting how you naturally flowed from this visual art background into, well, visual art that you wear. So. It's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. And I stopped when I started college, I stopped painting, making collages, all that, because I mm. was like, I have to, I'm catching up. I have to be a serious musician. Mm. I was at McGill. I was like the only, well, my first year, there were two singers and two females in the class. That was it. The second year, I was the only one. Ooh. She left. And I was like, jazz illiterate. And I was like, I got to just focus on this. And I also felt like entering the jazz world and being in a school that was mostly classical conservatory. I don't, I just, I felt some kind of guilt. Like it was 
superficial or trivial to focus mm. so much on on appearances, but I don't think so anymore. It's a facet of your life as an artist. So I started getting back into that in recent years. I love that. Can I actually circle back? Because like you, first of all, I'm like trying to actually follow in your footsteps, Martina. And yeah, you know, like in our, when we collaborate with Stephen Five Key and, and, and some of those other string players, I remember just, that was my first like real jazz gig. And it was like, I really wanted to, learn more about jazz in that after that experience, but I just didn't know where to start. I don't know where to start even to this day. And so like when you were reflecting upon your time at McGill and, and feeling like you're playing catch up, that's where I feel like I am right now. So I'm wondering, what did you do to catch up and begin to feed your brain and get Im immersed in the culture? Well, I'll start by saying I had an experience my junior year of high school, that completely changed my life and made me realize everything is figure outable. So when I was <laughs> 16, I lived in Lisbon, Portugal, and I was an exchange student and I lived with a host family and I went to Portuguese high school. So I, I did that because my dad's Brazilian. I always grew up understanding Portuguese. My mom speaks Portuguese. They divorced when I was a kid and I wasn't really fluent and also on top of that, by the end of my sophomore year of high school, I realized I literally had nothing going for me to go to college because I didn't do my homework. I miss singing class all the time. I wasn't serious. I, I told you I was one of those kids smoking cigarettes outside. <laughs> I just, no, I, look, I have a no smoking tattoo on my wrist now. It's really a problem. That's I was, beautiful. <laughs> I had no discipline and I was like, how am I, I'm not going to get, what am I going to do? I wasn't, I, I'm lucky I went to LaGuardia. There was a structure, but I was just going to school. I wasn't serious about anything. So, except I took piano, classical piano lessons. That was the only thing I did once a week. That's all I did. And so I was like, okay, let me be an exchange student, get my Portuguese solid. I'll have something to write about for a college essay. And it changed my life. It was a really hard experience because I went there with one suitcase. I go live with a host family. I'm meeting for the first time and they're European Portuguese. I couldn't even understand it. And then I go to Portuguese high school and it, I was just so, so out of my comfort zone. And I got addicted to smoking there because I was like, this helps in social situations. Like it's something to do. But I left totally fluent and, and it was a really hard experience. And I suffered and I came out a much, much stronger person. So started singing jazz my senior year of high school. And then I, when I went to McGill, I played classical piano a little bit, but I wasn't super literate, doing a lot by ear. I didn't know any jazz theory, 251. I didn't know, I knew a little classical theory, but not the way <laughs> jazz musicians do. And yeah. I get to McGill. The school is so hard. First semester, jazz theory, counterpoint, jazz ear training, <laughs> classical ear training, classical music history, jazz history, choir. It, I was like, going home and crying every day. And in ear training class, like halfway through the semester, they give us a lead sheet, 32 bars empty. The fourth bar is filled out. We have to listen to recording, fill in every other chord. I was like, how is this oh. possible? Now I can do that. I transcribe songs on the subway. 
now I can do that. So I went there like, I was still counting F-A-C-E when I got to McGill. I left. I had written my first big band chart. So I just knew I was like, I've been through this. It was another language immersion experience. I was like, I just did this and I really focused and I became fluent in Portuguese. I was doing my grammar books the whole time while everyone is reading literature and Portuguese class. I had my grammar book. A lot of exchange students from around the world didn't leave fluent, but I was not going to come home not fluent. So I did the same thing with this situation. I was like, I'm not going to be the only female, the only singer and be an idiot. I mean, the other singer was also a trombone player and was like the best in every class. So I was like, now I'm the idiot. So I'm, that's not going to happen anyway. So sorry. That's I'm an rambling. incredible story. No, it's beautiful. No, no, I love that. And it's so funny because I feel like I don't meet enough people who have somewhat of a similar story to me. Like I didn't do the arts high school and I was in rural North Carolina. But other than that, I was incredibly undisciplined. My parents didn't know what to do with me because they're just like, there's this weirdo art art kid in the middle of rural North Carolina. Like We didn't know about taking lessons. So my first real <laughs> lessons were like on guitar, electric guitar, like senior year. Because I think of being in rural North Carolina and just naturally talented. I never practiced, but I didn't know what the hell was going on. And so I think the advantage was that my parents never forced me to do anything. So I wasn't tired of it by the time, as I'm sure many of our classmates when we're starting undergrad. And if you're a kid and if you've been doing it like in the grind, so many times people are dropping out of music school because they've already been doing it for 10 years. It's not as interesting. So everything was like exposure there. I was like, okay, I'm going in this. And so I was super serious in college because I had to catch up. But like, I wouldn't trade that unstructured discovery uh, for anything. Did it set me behind? Yeah. But it'll, it kind of makes you, you have to be your own creative in a sense. Mm. You have to have your own interest and kind of find, you found music yourself. Your parents weren't just like, okay, this is it. You're going in. And not that there's something wrong with that, but you you had these like aha moments and you learned the trial by fire live and on your own. Were your parents strict at all or did they know? Were they like teacherly? Uh, she will figure it out and put up guardrails on creativity or I mean, yeah, well, how'd that work? I don't want to throw them under the bus because they're, they're, <laughs> they're great, great parents, amazing people, super inspiring people, but I think, look, I mean, I'm a twin. My brother went to a different high school. He went to this school called Beacon. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's mm. close to LaGuardia. Beacon was such a hard school. Like, they got an education. I mean, I'm filling in holes. I'm still filling in a lot of <laughs> holes. They got a great education. They were quizzed on they were quizzed on the news every day, like stuff like that. So my brother was the one who was doing homework all the time. I think I got to just hide and no one noticed. And on top of that, I wasn't failing. I was like, thank goodness I was a good test taker and stuff. And that yeah. that got me to B plus average that I didn't uh, deserve, probably. I wouldn't bring my report cards home. I don't know. I found ways to hide it. Like, <laughs> I don't. Yeah. So, but when you ask about discipline, are you also talking about like artistic discipline? Or yeah. What? In, in some sense, because we've talked a lot about just different types of discipline, but obviously you've wound through this like interesting p- path, but the proof's in the pudding. We've heard your voice. It's incredible. It's stunning. Like you don't get there without 
having figured it out. That's well, like that's the uh, like the myth of talent. Like you've solved the voice. Th- well, I don't feel like I've solved the voice, but <laughs> thank you. Well, this this is why I'm saying I owe so much to LaGuardia because that was a public school. No one was paying there. I had to choose a high school. I went to LaGuardia and and even though I was not doing my homework, I had three to four music classes a day. So I was singing like, so, so that was such a gift. So it's so funny, like having to figure out a practice routine later in life. I listened to these recordings of myself at 17. I was like, my intonation was perfect. Why is it so hard now? I'm like, I never practiced before. It's, oh, I did in school every day. And I had a voice teacher. We're getting classical training, our technique being checked every day. So that was discipline that I took for granted completely. So, and as far as at home, I mean, no one was excited for me to, I'm not going to say no one, but I think it's scary. The idea of your kid trying pursuing a career in the arts. Cause yeah, my parents are artists, but like my mom chose something that's, she's not a independent painter that's selling her paintings. She is in the scenic artists union. There's unlimited work for scenic artists in New York. My dad is in tech. So there's a lot. I think it's scary. Even up until recently, even though I've been supporting myself fully as a musician since I got out of college, which I think is a big accomplishment. I'm not maybe not making big bucks, not making big bucks and even still having to but you're making it. But still making it, not asking for any money. But I'd still have to assure my parents, I'm fine. Like, I'm making it. You don't have to worry about me. <laughs> Stop telling me about a plan B. And I, again, like, this is because they love me. They are wonderful parents. And I'm not, you know, now they're on board. So, yeah. So it's all good. There you go. Because you're showing them. You're showing them. I I have a couple like really pressing questions. Sure. The first of all is like on this this vein of like classical and jazz, and maybe maybe we can go down like the jazz route. So, what are some things that like you learned in school that you take with you to the practice room and to the stage? And then on the flip side of that, what are some things that you learned in school? that you've had to unlearn and throw away that have held you back in your career as a performer? Because like a lot of our listeners, they're different parts of their life, but many of them are like either beginning their journey as a musician or they're just about to go into college or they just left college. And I think like your wealth of experience in as being a performer and supporting yourself as an artist, you have great insight on this question. So- Could you share some of that with us? Okay. Something I took from McGill that didn't have a vocal program, Mm -hmm. jazz vocal program, is you have to put yourself at the standards of the instrumentalists because that school made me really literate. Going to McGill, new school, I had a lot of skills by the time I get there. I think it's harder to leave, at least when I was there, it's harder to leave new school as a jazz vocalist being quite as literate because there are a lot of singers. It's easier to feel comfortable. And there are more levels at McGill. There was just one class that everyone was in and it was hard and I was uncomfortable and I just had to step up. What were some things that you learned that you take with you? Yeah. How to transcribe just the ear training was so, I use that every day. How to transcribe changes from songs 
without an instrument. I mean, I can't do that with really hard songs. I need a piano, but that's something I took. That's something I took from it. Something I took from new school. I mean, I don't know. This is so technical and specific. I don't know if that's the kind of thing. Okay. Well, please. It's technical. I mean, these are, this is specific to, I guess, to singers because instrumentals don't have this issue so much because you have to understand a certain amount of theory to play the instrument and you have to know what the notes are and it's external, but like Mm -hmm. it's not built into singing. So I'd say you just know theory, basic theory, just know it and you can fall back on it. Something I learned at new school, which was so helpful. They had an ear training class where you had to solo on solfege. So you're improvising and you really know what the chord scales are that you're using that. And that really help my ear training so much. I think in Solfege first and I use that all the time. And yeah, so that's something I take with me. Yeah. Thank you so much. What was one thing that like you maybe learned in school that you've had to like discard? It was, oh, that was actually crap. And it actually holds me back. Do you have anything like that? I don't think I learned anything in school that I had to discard, honestly, because I don't. Mm-hmm. I got a lot out of music school. I know not everyone does because a lot of people enter at such a high level. But like I said, for me, it was language immersion. So I needed to go to music school mm-hmm. and I value it. But there are things that I've learned from being a professional musician, from the jazz scene, even from... The classical scene, sometimes I've had to discard certain mindsets that have been really toxic to me and have held me back. And I just have to try to close my ears when I hear certain things. I think when you're at these, when you're part of these like really very difficult genres, these elite musical communities, people are striving for perfection and you need to, you got to keep the level high, but as a result, people can be really judgmental of each other and you end up bringing that to yourself and it can really inhibit you from being free and creative. And that's, look, that's one reason why Drew, with all the stuff you've done with your career online, it's, I mean, it's so inspiring because you're, you are a classical musician and so many, and so many people it took me so long to finally start pursuing the YouTube thing seriously, which is what I've always wanted to do. Cause I'm hearing the judgment of musicians who might think it's superficial or whatever, or just that are like, that was always in the back of my head and seeing someone like you, who's making really cool stuff. You have all the access points and musicality is not sacrificed at all. It's so high. You don't have to, you can do both. So it's been really important for me to not listen to those people and keep people in my head that I really respect and think about them all the time. Like you, like Grace Kelly, Adam Mm. Neely. And honestly, she's awesome. I love Grace. Yeah. And a lot of these, I've worked with them both a bunch. Grace is a close friend. And most of these people are like really positive people. The (laughs) ones who are going for it and, and pursuing it, how do you two feel about the toxicity of these elite genres? Ooh, go ahead. I think Trim. it's yeah, I think it's uh, insanely present the toxicity, and I think that's a great example of something we have to work out of. 
And for me, it certainly held me back is that drive towards perfection. I'm just not writing things because it's not the best. It's not the best. And I was curious to hear from you the methods of like how to get past that. Because some people, it's just, they just grind. Others learn how to tune it out. Others try to like face it head on because we all have to tackle this. And it's this weird thing that I think only more recently is it like okay to talk about the toxicity mm. maybe it's just like the dawn of the age but to openly be like yo this is messed up and it's not good it's not good for us and i at least what helped me was realizing that not in a dark sense but like none of this matters not in like a none of this matters we have high standards but zooming out that kind of global perspective pretty much talking to people who have n- no idea what classical music is who have no idea what I'm doing. And <laughs> I'll give credit. One of the nice things about Juilliard as compared to like my undergrad, <laughs> where you're in a music building, you're in a music dorm, you walk from music, everyone you know does music. The New York you grew up in. <laughs> the moment you walk outside your door, the moment you open the doors to Juilliard and you leave, no one cares. Like they're not involved in music. Yeah. They don't know anything about you. And that's at least what's been exhausting about me with me in LA my time there was that you go to a bar at 2 p.m. to watch the game and the people behind you are complaining about their ASCAP royalties. True story. And I'm like, I cannot escape this. So I, it's really helped me a ton to just hang out with other people outside this and realize I'm like fretting. Is this a B natural, a B flat, the end of the world? And they, it's okay. It's okay to have other interests and live your life. And that I'm not performing brain surgery while I take it serious enough as if I could, I want to provide them a life-changing experience. So I'm not diminishing it that it doesn't matter. But in the best sense that I'm not necessarily responsible for their life and that not everything I do is the center of the world and the greatest thing and in the context of history. More often than not, when we look at the history of all these greats or, for instance, the greats on this call, like who'd have thought video editing just because, hey, it's expensive to get editors. You want to figure this out? Growing up with visual artists and making your own clothes. Mm. Like we, in the timeline at school, I don't think they were valuing the teachers like, oh, that's really neat. You become a seamstress and you're like, design your own clothes. No, like they're worried about, can you nail uh, this B flat diminished chord? But at least for us and for me, what I've noticed through this podcast and through life in general, that more often than not, it's the other things that make us interesting, that make us who we are. And that's who I remember. I'll read the bios. I don't care. But the school or the awards, wait a minute, you're a dog person? You like making pies? You make your own clothes? That's what's really interesting. And I, it's just so cool to hear, at least for you, how you've, you're bringing them all together. Because being able to have your own style is so valuable. Thank you. <laughs> to being an artist, a critical part. Well, so to start with what you first spoke about, which is like surround yourself with people outside of your community of artists, because you very quickly start to see how you're perceived by others. And it's okay, is this really that important or that great? I mean, for me, it's like, (laughs) big part of it, I spend a lot of time with my brother, who is already an artist, he's already open minded. And to him, like, he would always make fun of like, fun of me, I started to realize, oh, being a jazz singer is so corny and irrelevant. And it's almost embarrassing. (laughs) And (laughs) And I'm sorry to all the other jazz singers. No, but it is at least the way it is presented by most of the jazz world. And no offense, classical music too. I love classical probably more than jazz, but like 
the way the community comes across, it's just not cool. It's not cool. There are some cool people, but not as a whole. And jazz is that way too. It's really uncool. And I have this like cool brother and all these cool people outside of music. And I'm just like, oh, like they don't even know what I'm doing. They don't see how I'm interpreting the melody because they don't know the song. So they don't know the reference. So it's not impressive. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that really changed that was doing postmodern jukebox, which I was not even enthusiastic about it, about when I was asked to do it because I was an idiot and had this super elitist mindset. (laughs) Now I'm like, this is, as soon as I got there, I was like, my life changed. I was so sick of the jazz scene. I felt like I was in a rut. I was like ready to find another career. Like I started taking a real estate broker's course. I was just not, I had lost my passion for it. And then I was like, oh, look, I had that toxic mindset of looking down on everything that didn't fit whatever standards that I had absorbed from the community and a little bit from school. And it changed my life postmodern jukebox. All the music, even just musicians from a different genre, like a lot of pop singers, unbelievable musicians, so incredible. The audience loved it. When I would be a jazz musician and reinterpret the melody of Seven Nation Army and weave through the changes the way I like to, they responded to the changes because they knew the song, which was like, it just made me realize, oh, this is so contributing so much more to the history of this music than a lot of what is happening right now because it's innovating. And so, so... Then when I started to realize and like looking back into the history and like seeing, man, this music was created by rebels and now there's so much conformity and like my whole life I've been a rebel and I don't want to be a conformist. So that kind of, when I started to see it that way, I was like, I could see the big picture and that, that helped to, that helped to get me out of that mindset. And then when you look at people of other genres, like because jazz and classical people aren't reliant on fans, they don't, because it's, they're reliant on donors. It's totally different. And you have built in audiences so different. You don't have to promote yourself. You don't have to create this appealing, sparkly world, but in every other genre you have to. And it's so exciting because it, it enhances the music. And then I even think about even in classical music, like Wagner had his hand in everything how cool is that he that was really a reflection of him like every little detail the costumes i i can i actually circle back that was beautiful honestly i think you nailed on the secret and that's kind of like what i try to tell younger kids when i go talk in colleges stop treat trying to be like everybody else classical music especially just wants you to play like heifetz but who cares? Heifetz already existed. He already did his thing. He's already in the ground. What are you going to do about it? Right. And so when I get all these comments on, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little fired up. No, when please. I, post <laughs> Bach, I hate posting Bach because I always get comments. I hate the way you play this. And I'm like, I just want to yell into the void and say, I don't care what you think. Bach wrote this 300 years ago. Why am I going to try to play it like they did 300 years ago? Also, I'm a black man in America. My The way I see the world is super different than a German dude in 1711. I'm sorry that it comes out different, but I think that's what makes it beautiful. And so what you said about being a rebel 
I really just want to highlight that for the faking fan. Like that is, that's the only way if you want to break through the noise. As, and, and the last thing I wanted to do before I go to my, my, the question that I was most excited to ask you this evening was like, you were like talking about how jazz is like corny. And I'm I was sorry. just like, I was giggling. It's like, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think, but yeah. And I was like, you're talking to a violist and a bassist. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think it gets any more corny than what we do. So like, I mean, I don't right know. I mean, okay. Well, I don't know if I quite feel the same about classical. I don't think classical music is corny. Anything involved. But. Man, you need to meet some of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing because it reminds me of literally a conversation I just had. So I've been hosting some concerts out here in Colorado. I just organization. We've like teamed up and we're trying to put on shows. And someone asked, like we had 60 people on a roof, sold out. And we're like, hooray, finally. It felt good. And so when someone asked like about our donors, they're like, oh, so it's like donors? Like, no, we did it off ticket sales. Like we don't have donors. And they're like, what? It was just like such a foreign concept <laughs> to have a profitable event and to be an organization that's like an LLC, not a nonprofit. And, that's so and I didn't badass. even notice how weird that was until like they, they posed the question. I was like, no, we ran Facebook ads and like sold tickets to strangers. <laughs> that is incredible. What a huge accomplishment. Like, that's yeah, amazing. We, all we did was run Facebook ads. Just, yeah, Target. Thank, uh, thank you, Zuckerberg, for destroying the world. But hey, you got people show up to my concert. So thank you. Um, <laughs> But there's something wild about that. That's such a shocking thing that when I mentioned that, they're like, congrats. I'm like, wait, isn't that absurd if you think about it? And I love how you opened up with this. Classical music and jazz is the only thing you can exist without fans. And back in my stuck-up days, I've always listened to a lot of music, but classical music, theory and smart and elite and whatever, and obscure. (laughs) But it's like, why do people really love all these pop stars, these rock stars. And what are they doing so well? And why are they going to survive the test of time? Why are we going to be talking about some of these people in hundreds and hundreds of years? And it's because it's not just about the music. It's about them. When Beyonce walks out on that stage, you fucking know. It's Beyonce. You're getting the whole package. It's the song. It's the dance. It's the experience. It's what you know about her. It's her backstory. It's her family. You buy into the person. And it really seems like, particularly in classical music, I don't know if you feel about this in jazz, where there's this weird, obscure thing. The musicians walk out on stage. There's this barrier between the audience. They don't talk, or maybe one person introduces them. They don't talk. And then they play the music, and then they just walk off. And it's just like this weird, unemotional like transfer of music. How could I feel attached to that person sitting in, in violence too? I don't know anything about them. I can't relate to them. They're not dressed in any particular way. I don't know them. And yet all these pop stars, when they go up there and you watch a show, it's like, why are people having such a great time? It's not because they're just blasting it. It's because you're having the experience and it's not always about them. It's about you, you and the audience. And you get to feel like you know them and you want to dress like them and act like them. And it's just something that's just so foreign. And so it's great to just see what you've been doing because- when you're on stage and in video, it's you. It's not a vessel w- for a great voice. It's wait a minute, it's Martina. I, I, it's you, and I just I think that's why it just feels so much more, so much like a greater attachment. And I'm curious, well, what are your thoughts on that? And like with your fashion, are you curating the you? Are you unleashing the you? Because it's I- beyond just the voice now. First of all, thank you so much. I feel like I'm being way more myself than I ever 
have, again, like when I said I was repressing the visual art side of myself for years because I agree the jazz community is like that. Not quite as extreme as classical, but there's a lot of that. And like this sterile feeling about it, which is so unfortunate because it's like, yeah, you see an orchestral concert. It's such exciting music. Why can't I clap between movements? You know, why can't, like, it's so exciting. And so I repressed a certain part of myself for a long time to be accepted by a community. And and I think there's this, there's just this lore of elitism, at, at least for me, I think that was a big part of it. Even the people I chose to play with, people who weren't a good fit for me, who were playing, I call it like music school jazz, like super cerebral, even though I just like pretty stuff. I just like it pretty. But I felt like I kept going back to those situations and singing, making sure I hit all these crazy extensions to show them I could because it was some validation of my musical intellect that I felt like I needed so badly because I was such a slacker as a kid. And I was like, I need to feel smart. But you know what? Now I realize whatever, I did that. And it doesn't matter because I don't have to be overtly cerebral. I do a lot of shit and I figure shit out. So that makes me smart. And that's one thing, like having to come to terms with whatever like intellectual insecurity that I have about myself. And then, yeah, the other thing is world building and embracing myself as an artist. And look, the results have been Excellent. My following has doubled in the last six months. I just got monetized on YouTube. That feels great. Hell yeah. (laughs) And things just happened so quickly as soon as I started to do my own thing. And like also adding a sense of humor to this serious music, which is, I think it's hilarious because every we're all like speaking this ancient language and filling our head with ancient, like old vocabulary. And it's just, it's Mm. funny and everyone takes it seriously. Let's make this. (laughs) a little goofy and so and then as far as like expressing myself it's cool to now see i'm now seeing like doing these video shoots at my house unfortunately i have not been able to people are coming over for food and out of the love of their heart and their hearts and friendship and i'm super grateful for that and it's cool to see like who the people who are trying to get out and like they're down to show me photos of their outfits they're down to bring two outfits like what looks best and like People want, I think a lot of people feel like imprisoned by this culture, this musical culture. So I'm not the only one. Bruises on both my knees for you. Don't say thank you or please. I do what I want when I'm wanting to. My soul, so cynical. So you're a tough guy, like a really rough guy. Just can't get enough guy, just always so puffed guy. I'm the bad type, make your mama sad type, make your girlfriend mad type. I feel a lot of my story, like, reflecting off of your story, Martina, because being a classical musician, like, just being told no and that your ideas are wrong, it's just, oh, that that's just... We're going back to the toxicity. The one thing that I wanted to highlight, and the reason why I was so excited to bring you on here is because you are just an unadulterated badass. Like, it's not even... (laughs) We love... That's one of our things that we love doing is we love featuring badass women on this podcast. And I'm happy to add you the Faking Fam. And 
as I was like doing a little bit of research for our conversation today, I came across this story that I need you to tell our audience. Okay. I want to give a little bit of context. Let's go back to the year 2013, right? At least for me, I was desperately trying to become a professional League of Legends player, mid or AFK. <laughs> you, on the other hand, had started a band. We're clearly not the same, right? <laughs> and what's most interesting, honestly, is how you started the Ladybugs. You're filling in for another vocalist. You have the opportunity, this opportunity fall into your lap. And in, instead of shying away, you dove head first and came up with a unique concept band on the spot. For our faking fam, can you walk us through that faithful night on the rooftop of Hotel Chantel? <laughs> sure. So I, so this is when I was, I guess, still in college. I was you know, doing a lot of restaurant gigs, subbing for this singer, Dandy Wellington, dear friend, great all around multidimensional artist. And at his weekly Saturday brunch gig at Hotel Chantel. And the manager came over to me and said, we like you. We don't like our Sunday band. Do you have a cool concept for a band that we could put on here on Sundays? And I'm like, like I don't even have a band in my head. So I just said, at, at that point, I was really in the New York trad scene, trad for traditional jazz, like 20s, 30s yeah. stuff, wearing the vintage outfits. So this was like around the time when Great Gatsby was released. And that was a big, I mean, oh, it's still yeah. a great, it's still a, thriving scene, but it was like really trendy at that point. So I said, I have an all-female traditional jazz band. And he's like, great. What's it called? It was like the Ladybugs. And then he's like, okay, great. Start on Sunday. So the next week I had to put together a band. So I'll start why I didn't come up with the name Ladybugs because I don't want to take credit for that. I was very okay. close friends with someone named Joanna Sternberg. I, I have known them since um, middle school. We went to high school together and new school. Great bass player, multi-instrumentalist, but went to school for bass. And and Joanna had said years ago, like five years ago, five years earlier, let's have a band called The Ladybugs. Forgot about it. And then when they asked me about that, it came into my head and I said, The Ladybugs. So the next week, I, I knew I had a bass player. I had Joanna. Uh -huh. I had a friend from new school who played guitar, Dita Pellet, who I'm still friends with and play with all the time. Well, not as often as I'd like to, but I love her. And then I got a horn player, I think. And then I, mm -hmm. I, I got a drummer from new school. So people couldn't do this gig every week. So we just threw it together, just played, you know, tunes. So I was the only singer. And then one week I couldn't get a horn player and I knew Kate Davis. I don't know if you both know her, Kate Davis. I feel like we've connected, but it's been a long time. Oh, Kate Davis, not in the jazz world anymore, but was jazz bass prodigy as a kid. One of really one of my favorite singers that has ever lived on this planet. And she's Whoa. just she's a genius. I mean, I think she's a musical genius personally. And I feel after wow. yeah, after years of knowing her, I really she's in the very top of anyone I've ever worked with. And all and now she has like her own original project, like indie rock but singer-songwriter. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I, I just it. knew her as a bass player and singer. And I saw her play ukulele once. She went to MSM with my husband and played ukulele on one song on a combo show. <laughs> and I just said, I said, Kate, can you, I can't get a horn player. Can you play ukulele and sing backup harmonies? And she was like, well, I don't, I only know four chords on ukulele, but like, sure, I can play backup <laughs> harmonies. And as soon as I sang with her, we harmonized and it was just like, 
it's like the clouds parted, the sun came out, it was the most beautiful thing. It was magic. And then after that, things started to change. We couldn't have our drummer come all the time. So Joanna said, you play snare, just sing and play snare and brushes. It's not that hard. Just figure it out. I was like, okay. So I started doing that. And then eventually we had some guys join. We kept it gender inclusive. And and (laughs) eventually Kate left to pursue her own career. And then Vanessa Perea Mm -hmm. joined. She was a singer I knew. And I I needed a singer that could play ukulele or snare drum. I asked her husband, I'm like, would Vanessa be down to play snare drum? And she's, well, she's good at shaker and she makes drummers feel self-conscious. I was like, that's my girl. So I switched to the ukulele. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, Vanessa, you you got this. So yeah. So that's how. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah. That's the story. It's always these little things that you never know. I was, even for this concert, the, the one where tickets actually were sold. I just remember there's a bunch of Goldberg variations. So like all the music, very standard classical stuff. So it was just neat to see people caring about that just in a different context. But I wanted to have something in the bag to mention bringing up. And so I just read a little bit about the box Goldberg variations. And it's one of the few variations he's done because he looked down on it. It was for a rich count who was paying him. He probably made more money on that piece than he did anything else in his lifetime. That was his biggest check. And so here's an old dude, 250 years ago, who's just doing that one gig that, hey, this is going to pay for my like 20 kids I have. Maybe I'll get a flat screen or something out of this. (laughs) And so he's just doing this thing for the check to write a piece he doesn't like. And then here we are, 250 years later, we're talking about it and still playing it. It is still there. And so you just, you never know like what some of these odd things are. I'm just using classical examples. Tchaikovsky That's a wild hated the story. Nutcracker. I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tchaikovsky hated the Nutcracker because it's all anyone like cared about. But like we we have to hear that freaking thing every year, and it sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and like he hated it himself. And so you just you never know all these weird quirky things being in the right place, right time, and just, who knows if you didn't take that initial gig. No ladybugs. Like it's just yeah. it's wild and. Something I I think I meant to say earlier in answering a a different question is I just think you just got to take risks. That's my biggest piece of advice, really. Take risk. I mean, I I think in the Goldberg variation situation, I don't know that there was a risk taking because he was getting money. But still, I feel like I'm just so used to just like taking a little random thing and turning it into something. I do that with literally everything. So just turn it into something and you can just like polish it and it'll be cool. So yeah, I think taking risks and like back to you, Drew, with starting your whole social media presence, like that, I'm just so curious about that. Like that was such a risk to take as a classical musician, right? Was that so scary? So badass. Oh, yeah. Like, okay, so Trevor was in... I think you were in my second ever video. The first video I ever made was like my channel trailer. And the second video was like this, this video called truth about Juilliard. And I just like, yeah, while I was like a first year at Juilliard. So I just, I talked to Isabel Hagen. I talked to Trevor. I talked to our boy, John Hong and the pod, Jeffrey Miller and just a few other people. And we just listed off things that we loved about Juilliard. I just, was like this was like me trying to replicate old school YouTube but I remember people when I published that and I went to school like people just 
from then on would just give me weird looks in the hallway. And like, I'd walk past them. I'd like smile and say hi. And they would just look at me. They wouldn't respond. They'd just look at me and walk by. I was just like, did I, did I do something to any, even my roommate, he shall remain nameless. Cause I'm not trying to dox him. He actually called me randomly out of the blue and I didn't answer for many reasons, but he sat down at the table one day in our apartment they say you fool yourself, aren't you? You think you're, you think you're, you think you're hot shit or something? And I'm like, what do you mean, dude? And I also asked you to be in a video, and you were excited about it. He said, who do you think you are? Just putting video. You don't know anything. You don't do anything. And that kind of was really rough for me because I lived with him. I trusted him, and I even asked him to be in my videos, and I didn't know mm. he felt this way about me. And so from then on, it got a lot harder. And then at some point, it's what you said, Martinez. What do you want? If you listen to other people and you don't take risks, you have to live with those consequences. Like people can have opinions, but they don't have to live with the consequences of your actions. That's on you. It's really easy to make it a habit. And once I made it a habit, it was like, it felt less like a risk and just more of something that I had to do because it was a part of who I am. And wow. for both of you to do that, because back then it was this weird thing on this little app, Instagram, like who knows, MySpace was gone. What is it all worth it? And to be looked at. And I, I don't know. I was just always impressed by it and not to poo poo the naysayers and to stick it back in revenge tour because you're nice. But I do find it ironic that most people who went into that social space, we were taking risks looked down upon by the communities as this is a joke, uh, like telling us about your life and other stuff. Like you should be in the practice room, like no serious musician. The sweetest irony is not just because the pandemic, but before it is who's getting called back to talk to Juilliard to to who's the, the New York Phil calling the New York Phil didn't call a lot of these great performers calling Drew. Like who, who are all these other people calling now that you've been in postmodern jukebox and you're just appearing in all these and, huge things. And it's um, so true. That go beyond that little crowd. It's so true. Like, all I heard was just everyone in the jazz community talking badly about postmodern jukebox. And that influenced me. And now it's everyone, if I'm doing something, they're definitely going to make sure they mention that I did postmodern jukebox. And everyone wanted to hear about it after. And then you have to realize, like, that kind of judgment, it comes from fear, insecurity, all this stuff. I see so much of that from the people that don't have a big following, but like Grace Kelly, let me tell you, one of the most uplifting people I've ever spent time with in my life. And you end up having better musical experiences with them. Like she played on my latest record, Dan Shemansky and I recorded another record. We just did one take of each song. I was like, how is this? This is magic. Like it's because she, it's her, it's her. One take. It was so crazy because her spirit and obviously the musicality, but at a certain point, it's like everyone's great. That's the thing. People who want to say that it's it's a cop out or fast track to success and all this stuff. You have your musicianship to rely on and no one can um, mess with that. And no one can argue that because you don't present it just because you don't lead with that doesn't mean it's not there. You don't have to lead with it. People can discover it and it's more exciting that way. Right. Yes, ma'am. I hope y'all were listening. Faking fans. <laughs> Martina out here dropping <laughs> gems, y'all. It's incredible. It, 
it's really about advocating for the art and something that it always stuck for me when someone's poo-pooing someone like a composer whose music sounds beautiful, like Eric Whitaker. For some reason, composers just can't acknowledge the fact that everyone in high school has sung one of his pieces and like loves, loves head sound. It just, just sounds awesome and like got to poo-poo it because he used a triad. And I, I try to think about it. I'm like, guys, we can admit that this sounds pretty dope. This is pretty <laughs> awesome. And two... That little that person that piece you're you're shitting all over and being a, a stifler about has brought more people into classical music than probably anything else that's ever out there. I mean, think about a lot of these postmodern jukebox. How many people we don't know could have watched that video and it changed their life? That was their moment of going to Portugal. That was their McGill. Wait a minute. I could do something like, what is this music? It's a song I recognize, but it's done in this other way. And I think for all of the kind of sticks in the butt, clinging on to a traditionalist, like that's just the thing that rests with me. With those zero fans, am I making any difference or making making any impact? And that's what at least brought me into things like this podcast, speaking uh, to incredible artists like yourselves, because you're out there and it's hard being in the public face. It's hard putting things down on wax or MP3 and dropping it into listeners, kind listeners like yourself. But <laughs> getting out and getting back, finding those fans, sharing the difficulties, talking about other things outside of music, singing other types of music, you're reaching new audiences. You're actually bringing more people in. There are probably, we don't even know them, but there's a good chance that someone watched the video you sang and is now a, is now a musician. And like that's impact. Who knows what they're going to be able to do? It could change someone's life. Facts. Yeah, I I totally agree and making making something that is accessible <laughs> that is such an asset to music. It doesn't it enhances it. It doesn't degrade it, degrade it like it's way harder to make something accessible and rich. That takes even more skill. Martina De Silva, you are like still to this day one of my favorite artists, one of my favorite thinkers. Mm. And I'm so glad you came on here. I realize it's late for you. Let's wrap <laughs> it up. I wanted to just before we let you go, we're going to roll out our purple and gold carpet for you. Do you have any like <laughs> upcoming projects you want to shed a spotlight on for us and the Fakey fam to go check out? Sure. First of all, thank you for saying that. My biggest thing right now is putting out weekly videos. I'm getting better and better at it. And that's really, that's what I'm, my passion is right now. So I have made a Patreon and I would love your support if you can do yeah. it if you can't yeah. that's fine i will be making these anyway but yeah if any of you out What's there the patreon.com slash martina de silva beautiful go support her y'all support thanks again for coming through i love hearing your voice and like I, I like so to much. finally hear your speaking voice telling your story and sharing all that you do with the faking fans so Till next time. Thank you so much for having me, and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Yay! All right. I